need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be in chapter 5 of the book of Exodus here uh, tonight. So far, we have seen Moses go from royalty in Egypt to the humble sheep herder in the desert. Moses meets Yahweh at the burning bush, the great I am, the holy self-sufficient God, then commissions Moses, you're going to be the deliverer of Israel. Now I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. We've already been over how Moses makes five excuses there, of why he cannot possibly be the deliverer. Who am I? Who shall I say sent me? What if they don't believe me? To which God answers every single one of those with, Moses, I'm going to be with you. There's, there's no problem here. I'm going to be with you. To where he then says, but I'm not a very good speaker. And, of course, the last objection was, please, Lord, just send someone else. So God gives him Aaron to speak for Moses. God's going to speak to Moses. Moses is going to speak to Aaron. And then Aaron is going to speak to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh. And so, and one last thing. Get, get this, Moses, if you're going to represent me, then guess what? You have to be obedient to the covenant, Abrahamic covenant. And, and, and just having one child circumcised, yeah, that's not good enough. Both your kids need to be circumcised. And so God incapacitates Moses until Zipporah circumcised her second child, Eliezer. And so at this point, it looks like Moses has gotten his house in order. His, uh, his children are circumcised. God releases him. He sends Zipporah back to Jethro. Moses has now been reunited with Aaron at Mount Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai. They both go back to Egypt, where Aaron introduces Moses to the, the, the elders of the children of Israel. Moses does his little tricks. He does his little signs that God gave him to do. He throws down the staff, becomes a serpent. He does the, the hand in, in, in his cloak and bring it out leprous and then putting it back in and it's renewed. And then he goes to the Nile and he scoops up some water and pours it out and becomes blood. And so everybody sees that God is with him and that he's there to deliver them from Egypt into the promised land. And based on what they saw, What they heard from Moses, the elders and the people believed the good news. That God had sent them a deliverer to deliver them out of Egypt. And so the close of chapter 4 leaves us with this last verse in verse 31 of chapter 4. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. So far, so good. Everything's going according to plan. Just as God said would, Aaron meets Moses, just like God said he would. Moses meets with the children of Israel, just like God said that they would. And they listened to him and they believed, just like God said that they would. Now all they have to do is go see Pharaoh, tell him that the Israelites need to go three days in the wilderness to worship God. A piece of cake. What could possibly go wrong? This narrative in chapter 5 and 6 is kind of broken down into eight events that we're going to be able to look at here. The very first one is Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. 
chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then we have Pharaoh's instruction to the taskmasters in verses 6 through 9. And then the taskmasters' treatment of the Israelite foreman, verses 10 through 14. And then the Israelite foreman petitioned Pharaoh, verse 15 through 18. And then the Israelite foreman confront Moses and Aaron, verses 19 through 21. And that's where we'll pretty much stop here this evening. And But then... Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll get into how Moses then questions Yahweh in verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 8. And then Moses speaks to the Israelites in verse 9, chapter 6. And then Yahweh, the Lord himself, speaks with Moses, verses 10 through 21. And so as we move forward here into chapter 5, we're going to see that God is about to enter into a conflict with Pharaoh of Egypt. Their pride, their insolence, and worshiping false gods have gone on long enough. God is about to judge them. But before he does, the Lord, Yahweh, is going to introduce himself to Pharaoh. And so he's going to reveal himself to Pharaoh. And he's also going to reveal Pharaoh's heart in the process. So starting here in verse 1 of chapter 5, It says, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, and thus says the Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, the interesting thing is here is that's not the way that God said it. If you go over here, well, actually, it's going to be up here on on the board here. In chapter 3, verse 18, this is what God said to, to, to Moses to say to Pharaoh. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and all the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to them, well, first off, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh. There's no leadership there. There there are no elders of Israel with Moses and Aaron. But God said to bring them. Yet we read the Lord God of the Hebrews. Uh, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. That's what they were supposed to say. They didn't say that. Now, looking at these two verses together up here, it says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But God told them to say, The Lord... Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, notice that magical word. Always remember your please and thank yous, right? God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is telling him, this is how you need to approach Pharaoh. You know, there's a book out there called um, How to Make Friends and Influence People. You know, I, I, I recommend that to a lot of you. Just saying, okay? Um, I would recommend that to Moses and Aaron after their approach here with Pharaoh. It's like, dude, I understand the Lord is with you, but you're also going in front of Pharaoh, okay? And so he says, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. That's not what they said. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Much different tone. Much different. So, 
They were to say, please. They were to instruct him that Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, he's being introduced to the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. And he says, please, we're just going to go three days into the wilderness in order to sacrifice to the Lord our God. However, Moses and Aaron reworked this, introducing a very, very blunt demand to release the people. It was originally a polite request, but now it's been made into a direct command from God. No mention of the short three-day journey, just a demand. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Whereas God spoke originally of sacrifices in the wilderness, Moses and Aaron speak of it as a feast, like a celebration. Verse 2 shows how Pharaoh takes this, okay? And he doesn't receive it very kindly, and you can see it in the tone of his voice. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Again, L-O-R-D, I'll capitalize. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. He has a right question here. Who is Yahweh? He has a wrong attitude, though. Okay, that I should obey his voice. Well, guess what? This shows Pharaoh's pride. I do not know Yahweh. Well, guess what, dude? You're going to get to know him. You're going to get to know him. And you need to understand something. Egyptian kings saw themselves as deity. Okay, they saw themselves as gods. And so if Pharaoh obeyed Yahweh, he would be recognizing a greater deity than himself. And his pride and his arrogance would not allow for himself to do that. Not surprisingly, Pharaoh's response is especially contemptuous to Israel's God, Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? He's never heard of Yahweh. I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. He doesn't know him, but he's going to find out. And it's never a good idea to cop an attitude with God. God is going to come down hard on Pharaoh. And so there will be no mistaking over time who is Yahweh. As a matter of fact, one of the main points of Exodus is so you will get to know Yahweh. And because of the language that Pharaoh used, he uses, I do not know Yahweh. Who is this God, Yahweh that I should obey Yahweh. Well, it's interesting as we go through this that there are certain things, and these aren't the only two, there's several, as you go through the Exodus account where God specifically says, and this is how you will know me. So in Exodus 7.17, thus says the Lord, by this you, meaning Pharaoh, shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. This is one of the ways you're going to get to know me. I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. He says again in in chapter 8, And in the day that I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you, Pharaoh, may know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, in the midst of the land. And we're going to see this time and time again throughout the Exodus account. Lord Yahweh showing Pharaoh exactly who he is. There's all these 
interesting dynamics as we go through God's word that play off the fact of, of how people respond to God. And it's kind of like, oh, you don't know me? Well, you're going to get to know me. And we're going to see this as we go through. And there's several little phrases and, um, and words used that God uses those same phrases or words throughout the Exodus account that makes you think back, well, wait a minute, so-and-so said this. That's right. And God's using the same language they use as he goes forward to kind of remind them, or at least remind us, of what people have said. And it's kind of like, oh, you don't know me? Guess what? You're going to get to know me. As a matter of fact, I'll use those same words. So you, Pharaoh, will know. Same word that you said when you said, I do not know Yahweh. And who is he that I should obey his voice? So, we see a bit of a, an attitude change now with Moses. Look at verse 3. So they said, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now you got it right. You got it right. And then he adds to it. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Oh, dude. God never said that. He never said that. After the hard, demanding approach towards Pharaoh does not work, they finally say, please give their petition, but they add something to it, almost in a way of making, hoping that Pharaoh will feel sorry for them. I better let him go, or God's going to get him if they don't. He's going to hit him with pestilence or with sword. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says, Every word of God is pure. Every bit. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Moses, God's word is pure. It's perfect. All we need to do is trust what God's word says. It's sufficient in and of itself. The word is going to be able to accomplish what it purposes. So what God gave you to say, it will accomplish the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Maybe not the moment you say it. Maybe not the week after you say it. But you're going to trust in it. And knowing the timing is up to the Lord, but he will accomplish what he purposes. I don't have to make it happen. Don't add to his words. You don't need to do that. It would seem that Moses does not trust what God has spoken will actually accomplish the release of the Israelites and go to sacrifice to God in the wilderness. And so he adds the words, thinking that, again, Pharaoh might feel sorry for him. This is wrong. It lacks faith. But Moses, too, is learning. He is growing in his faith. One of the things we notice with Moses is that he begins to change before our very eyes. Remember, this was just weeks before uh, um, reluctant Moses. Now he kind of boldly comes into Pharaoh's you know, quarters and demands that he release the people of Israel. And then when that isn't going well, well, well please, you know. And, but, but, but he's certainly a lot more bold and courageous than he was just in chapter 3 and 4 that we've seen. You know, he is changing and nobody's perfect and it does take time. He's growing in his faith. He's trying to understand who the Lord is, that he is the great I am, and he will do it. 
he will do it. But what has changed Moses? I would say exactly what it says in verse 3, when he says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. When it says that, I believe that Moses, at that point, as we know, as he went through the burning bush and everything else, he had a personal encounter with God. A personal encounter with God. At first, he had trouble believing all that God spoke to him, but eventually he came around, began to trust in God's promises, obey his commands. Moses, when he began to step out on faith, he grew, not perfectly, but I would say it seems to be the same pattern that all of us go through, including the disciples. The Gospels make it very clear that the disciples were a bunch of knuckleheads. They were. I remember one time someone coming to our church, and they were on the phone, and they were talking to someone else, and, man, you, you should come here. You know, the, the, the people here, they're, they're, they're a bunch of characters, and then she turned and looked at me, and, I, and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And I go, no offense, because the disciples are a bunch of characters, you know? And so I, I think that's good company to be in. But they were. They were a bunch of characters. They were a bunch of knuckleheads. They were a bunch of glory seekers, concerned about how they're going to look like at the end of the age and where their positions are going to be. I mean, they were just glory seekers. And then when it came to Jesus' greatest hour of need, they were asleep. And then when the soldiers came for him, they scattered in the darkness. Then after the crucifixion and resurrection, we find the disciples huddled together in a room, fearing that they'd be discovered when all of a sudden Jesus comes in. It was awesome. Then 50 days later at Pentecost, they went out into the streets of Jerusalem, fearlessly preaching the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. They went on with the rest of their lives, expanding the kingdom of God, going through persecution and imprisonment, and to which each one of them suffered a martyr's death. So what happened to these men? How did they change from this, these cowardly disciples to courageous disciples? I would submit to you it's the same thing that Sanhedrin wondered when they had Peter and John before them. And we read in Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, I want to know what gave them that idea. What was it? How were they speaking where they're going, Whoa, these guys didn't go far in their education. But that's not what they marveled at. They marveled, and they realized they had been with Jesus. That's all I hope. I hope that nobody ever hears me teach and go, oh, wow, he speaketh well. I don't think anybody's going to ever say that, but, you know, if they did, it's like, I I don't want that. What I want is that they would know that I've spent time with Jesus, that I've spent time with Jesus. can't think of a greater, you know, reputation to have then going, man, I I just know that's a godly woman. She's spending time with the Lord. You could just tell it just exudes. That guy, he's a godly guy. For one reason, I know he spends time with the Lord. Once you meet the living God, the risen Savior, Jesus, you're filled with such courageous faith that nothing in the world can stop you from living for his glory. 
Same thing happens to everyone who meets the risen Lord. Show me someone who walks by boldness and courageous faith. I will show you someone who spends a lot of time with the Lord. Moses, with great courage, tells Pharaoh. He doesn't ask. He tells Pharaoh, let God's people go. That's bold. That's bold, especially for Pharaoh, who believes that he's a god. Believes he's a god. Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, was said to be the child of the sun. He was the friend to the greatest gods of Egypt, sat with these gods in their own temples to receive worship alongside of them. The entire population of the Egyptians lived to serve Pharaoh because he was God. There was no law to govern Pharaoh. What Pharaoh said was law. And to go to him and demand that he let God's people go in order to celebrate a feast in the wilderness, that, that, that was courageous. Definitely was courageous. I'll give him that. I'll give him that. And the way that Pharaoh denies this request for them to worship shows his rebellious heart, and it shows that he really does think he's all that. So Pharaoh's response is no. I'm not going to let the Israelites leave for a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to this God that I don't know, Yahweh. And it says this is the same reaction that people, if you were to ask me, have today. Same, same reaction. They won't obey God because why? They don't know God. That's why. They don't know God. They have outright rebellion towards God and hate even mention the name of Jesus, and they just detest even hearing that word. They have a hatred. And I hate even the thought that they just might someday have to be accountable to him. The heart of Pharaoh is clearly revealed here. He has no desire to know God, and he refuses their request. And so this is still true today. Many hear God's authority. Repent. Believe. The gospel is an invitation, but it's also a command. Did you know that? It's also a command that you believe. It's interesting in Acts 17.30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Yeah, there's an invitation there, but it's also a command. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, love one another as he gave us commandment. He commands us to repent, and he also commands us to receive. Interesting. Interesting. The response of unbelievers, the heart of the natural man is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, if you don't, 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There's a judgment that's coming. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? Those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that? That commandment, he says in 1 John 3.23, that we should believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another. On that one. God's judgment will fall upon those who do not know him. And this is why God invites us to know him through his son Jesus and the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You were called. 
John 1.12 says, But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. You've been commanded to do so. You've been called to do so. The invitation is still there. You've been called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when you receive the invitation of receiving Jesus and all that he did for us on the cross in the way of pain for the sin of mankind, when you receive that, you become a child of God. And as a child of God, you now belong to God and you will spend eternity with him. In Exodus 5, verse 4, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses, Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. This is so typical of the world's attitude towards spiritual things. The world looks at worship and going to church, uh, going on a retreat uh, as a waste of time. They do not respect such devotion. And so many of you have probably uh, ran up against this as you've asked for your employer to give you the weekend off so you can go to a women's retreat or a men's retreat or, or uh, can I get off early because our church is doing this in the afternoon or, or whatever it might be and they kind of look at you and they go, what? No. They don't see the value of it. They don't understand why you're asking for Sunday mornings off. Say, look, I'll work late on Saturday night, you know, but I want to go to church in the morning. And they can look at it and go, why? There are some times where, look, you work retail, you work a specific job, you just, you, you have to work on Sunday morning. That's one of the reasons why we have Saturday night. What kind of an absolute ogre of a boss do you have? They'll say, no, I want you to work late on Saturday night and get here early Sunday morning. And some of you have those. To which, honestly, I believe you need to stand up and say, no. this is We're not talking about a firefighter that has to work four days and it's over that whole weekend and things like that. We're not, we're not talking about that. That's why we have community groups during the week so they can attend that, you know. And, uh, and, and police officers as well. I mean, different schedules and working at a hospital. There, there are schedules there that are just crazy, you know, and they're not trying to be obstinate or anything else. That's just kind of the way it works, and, and, and I get that. You know, that's why we have other things during the week and, you know, and uh, that people could be a part of. And, and, and so, um, so they can continue with their walk with the Lord, but the world doesn't look at those things as valuable. They think you're wasting your time. And so Pharaoh in verse 5 says, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So now Moses and Aaron are no longer in Pharaoh's presence. He's now going to go off and talk to his taskmasters. All right. So Pharaoh, uh, Aaron and, and Moses aren't here in verse 6. The last time he speaks to him is in verse 5. And so it says, So the same day, okay, after he's done speaking to Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron, on the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, now the word taskmaster in the Hebrew is nagas, and it means to press, to drive, to laborious work, oppressor, slave driver, tyrant. You don't want to be under one of these guys. But in Egypt, you wanted to be one of those guys. The officers here, are not Egyptian. The taskmasters are. But the officers are not. The Hebrew word is satir, and it means official or scribe. Verse 14 and 50 tells us that the officers are Hebrew. They're the Israelites. 
most likely uh, Hebrew foremen, okay, that they're there to write down and making sure the quotas are done and being able to show the documentation to the taskmasters who will then bring it to Pharaoh, okay, to show that all that brick making is going along just fine to be able to do all your building projects and things like that. And so they're there to make sure, hey, the quotas are being met. Here's all the documentation for it. He says in verse 7, he goes, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So, they would make enough brick for whatever amount of straw was delivered. You know? So, if X amount of straw is delivered, they have to make the X amount of bricks out of that straw. And if they got a lesser amount of straw, then it's a lesser amount of bricks that would be required of them. It would all determine how much straw is brought their way. Now Pharaoh is saying, let them get their own straw. Okay, well, it takes time to go gather the straw, to you know, bind it up, transport it to where it needs to go. And whatever time frame that is to do that has now been added to their day. Has now been added to their day. So, because of that, you understand that at this point, it's going to be an extremely difficult task to do because now there's not enough time in the day to get that done. It's interesting as he does this, this always is a result in rejecting God's testimony. To resist the light casts you into more darkness. Instead of allowing the people of God to worship God, Pharaoh orders their lot to be made harder. The ignorance of God always leads to the injustice of your fellow man. Always. Always. To try and find utopian for mankind without God is impossible. To say we can live in harmony and tolerance without God is the ultimate lie from Satan. True brotherhood of mankind can only be made possible in knowing and surrendering to God. You can only truly love your fellow man if you're truly in love with God. That's why Jesus said, when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You have to love him first. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's on those two commandments alone that everything hangs on. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 4. Over here, 1 John. First John chapter 4. Beginning here in verse 7. It says, Beloved, 1 John 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Okay, well, well, how do you do that? Well, he says, for love is of God. Love is of God. And if anyone who loves is born of God and knows God, he who does not love does not know God, 
for God is love. In this, the love of God has, was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's how God loved us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation, payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if he did that for us, we also ought to love one another. Now, in verse 20, it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is how they're going to know that you are my disciples, your love for one another. It all begins here. We got, we got to love each other here, you know. And so if you're going through a difficulty, we want to come alongside. And when you go through a crisis, that's why we have people that will call you up and, and uh, you know, um, a loss of loved ones, and all of a sudden meals start to flood in. And, and then uh, we, we get word of what your needs are, and, and we're there to help meet that, those needs because that's the love of God through the body moving in order to love you, in order to love you. Going back here to Exodus chapter 5, verse 7, he again says here, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go, gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, and then they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So Pharaoh's thinking, since you have all this time to be planning a getaway um, to worship another God, I'll increase your workload. So you'll have no time to think about leaving to worship another God. And Satan does this all the time with God's servants. He uses the world to increase your workload. So you don't have time to worship. You don't have time to go to church. You don't have time to do your devotion with him each and every day. You're too busy to spend time with God during the day. And if you are, guess what? You're too busy. Whose fault is that? That's always going to fall on you. It's always going to fall on you. If you're too busy to come to church with fellow believers and corporate worship, then you're too busy. Because that's what the church is. That's what the word means, ecclesia. It's called out ones into a place of public worship together. That's what the church is. And so in Exodus 5.10, it says, And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Moses began to kind of like say, uh, that same thing, you know. He's the one that came and says, Thus says the Lord. Now, Pharaoh goes out and kind of parrots that. Thus says Pharaoh. Okay. But as we continue to go forward in God's word, we're going to see time and time again, Thus says the Lord. Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. Yahweh. Guess who wins in the end? Yahweh does. 
Thus says, and now who are you going to listen to? Thus says, don't care about what Pharaoh has to say. Now I care what Yahweh has to say. So Pharaoh kind of puts himself in the place of God by using that same vocabulary that Moses used when he came to him. There's a showdown coming. Because the world's not big enough for the both of them. And there's a new sheriff in town. His name's Yahweh. And Pharaoh's going to lose. He's going to lose. Verse 11 says, Go get yourself straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. Now, even today, in many places around the world, brick is made by using straw as a binding agent with the mud to make brick. Okay? Now, if you have some sort of a kiln, that's not needed. Okay? But if you don't have some sort of a kiln, then in order to uh, have that binding agent, you need to have straw or stubble or something that is mixed in with the mud that can kind of like stay there and bake out in the sun in order to bring it together and make it hard. And if it doesn't have that binding agent, the brick is not as strong and will break apart. And so straws or husks of grain, such as grain stalks or wheat or corn, can be used as binding agents. Reeds or anything of that material can be used as a binding agent for brick. If the Egyptians do not bring this binding agent to the workers and they have to go out and get it themselves, that means they have to get up early in the morning, much earlier than they were before, to go collect that so they can make the brick and put it out in the sun during the day. Okay, so if their jobs were hard before, they're twice as hard now. Twice as hard now. Verse 12, so the people were scattered abroad throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. The Hebrew word for stubble is is cas, and it means uh, shaft, okay? Outer husks of stock, anything that might be blowing in the wind that you can grab, you know, um, you could put that in there. The Hebrew word for straw is taben. It means stalks of grain chopped up. This is stuff that's also used for fodder for animals, but it's also used for building materials such as brick. So one is better at binding the brick together than the other. The other one, you can still do it. The other one is better. Okay, so but if you can't get straw, try and get whatever you can. Um, Basically, find whatever you can to bind the bricks and maintain your quotas for making bricks. Okay. Um, verse 13 goes on, and the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. And also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? The word beaten here in the Hebrew is nakah. It means to strike. Again, this is what, this is what I'm saying as we go through this. We're going to have certain things that the Egyptians do or say, and then God turns it around and seems to use that in, in the narrative, okay, uh, as, as he's trying to, um, in the Exodus account, in order to deliver his people out of Egypt. So the word here, nakah, means to strike. It's the same word that the Lord, Yahweh, is going to use time and time again when he's doing the plagues. So in the first judgment, the first plague of turning the Nile into blood, it says in Exodus 7, 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know. Again, like we said before, this is how you're going to know. How? He says, I am the Lord. How? Behold, I will strike. Same word, nakah. Because you're going to strike my people, I'm going to strike you. 
I'm going to strike the waters which are in the river, which the rod that is in my hand, they shall be turned to blood. He says the same thing in the third plague when it came to lice. In Exodus 8, 16. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land so it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. You know, when I think of all the different plagues, that's the one that I just go, no, not lice, you know. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, struck, same word, nakah, the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And then we see it again with the seventh plague, hail. And the hail struck, same word, nakah, throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck, says it again, every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. And then we see it in that tenth plague, death of the firstborn. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. I am Yahweh. You're getting... Are you getting to know me now, Pharaoh? You know? There's a sense of justice when the Lord Yahweh later strikes Egypt, like when the taskmaster struck the Hebrew foreman. Um, it's, again, God saying, you're striking my people, so I'm going to strike you. I'm going to strike you. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Then the officers of the children of Israel came, cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? Look how many times they call themselves Pharaoh's servants. Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. Ah. He's saying, because you won't give us straw. Those are your people, Pharaoh. Those are the Egyptians won't give us straw. So again, they aren't Egyptians here. The foremen here are Israelites. But he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now, work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. Three times the foreman of the children of Israel call themselves your servants. The word servant here in the Hebrew is aved, and it comes from the root word aved, and it means to serve, to work, to be subject to, to worship. At the heart of the Exodus story here, is, to, is this whole issue of who are you going to serve? Pharaoh or Yahweh? And at this point, Israel affirms they want to serve Pharaoh. They had just heard from Moses and Aaron and the leadership of Israel what God is going to do, yet because more pressure has come upon them, more suffering has come upon them, how quickly why don't they go to God? Why don't they take Moses and Aaron and the leadership and go to them and say, this is what's happening now. Can you go to God and ask what, what is going on? They don't. They go immediately to the world and in order to alleviate their suffering. And if they will just alleviate the suffering a little bit, we will continue to serve you. Wow. Wow. The story of the Exodus is to show God's saving grace. God sees the bondage that Israel was under there in Egypt, the oppression, 
And so he's going to remove it. He's going to deliver him, not because they deserve it, but because God is gracious and he's loving and he's compassionate and he's merciful and he's faithful to keep his promises. The Bible carefully records the details of their suffering to show their desperate need of deliverance, of salvation. To prove that God's glory of grace, the good news of salvation means freedom from captivity. Who thought they would ever need to be set free? Well, God saw the need for that. And yet they probably thought they'd never be set free under the yoke of Egypt. Yet God saved them. God rescued them. He sent him a deliverer. His name is Moses. But it's the same with us today. The Bible tells us that we are also in captivity. And it's amazing to me how many people don't want to be freed of it. I want you to go to Romans chapter 6. Go to Romans chapter 6. Paul tells us this. Starting in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that, through the, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He goes on and says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. See, the point that Paul's making here is that When you were a slave of sin, you could not do what you ought to do, being a child of God, being created. You couldn't do that so long as you were a slave to sin. You couldn't do that. And then he goes on, he says, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What did being a slave to sin produce in your life? What godly thing do you want to come up here right now in front of everybody and say, this is what my sin produced? And none of that would bring glory to God. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. For now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting Life. See, when you're set free from sin, you're now free for the very first time to do what you ought to do, which you were never capable of doing before. You are now capable, no longer being a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ, to be Christ-like for the first time, to bring glory to God for the first time, to help expand the kingdom of God for the first time. You're able to have purpose in an internal perspective for the first time. But you weren't able to do any of those things so long as you were a slave to sin. 
And he goes on, he says, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How awesome that is. Over and over again, the New Testament declares that we're in bondage to sin. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we would continue to be slaves of sin. And you are a slave of whatever has a master over you. When alcohol comes, comes calling and you go, that is your master. When lust comes calling and you go, that is your master. When anger comes calling and you give in to that, then anger is your master. The angry person is mastered by his anger. When something makes this person mad, that person cannot control their temper. The lustful person is mastered by their lust. When temptation comes, they're helpless, given over to the pleasures of that lust. The selfish person is mastered by their own selfishness. They spend all their time thinking about their own needs and pitying themselves when they go unmet. This person has no love to give anyone else because they're only focused on themselves. As sinners, we get so used to sinning that we don't recognize the bondage that we're in, that we're actually slaves to it. Exodus kind of gives us this powerful picture of what it really means to be enslaved, just as the children of Israel were powerless being held prisoner in the house of bondage, so we are powerless in our bondage to sin. In the same way the Israelites had to take orders from Pharaoh, we have this fiendish slave driver who makes us make bricks without straw, because sin is the harshest taskmaster. It will always demand more and more from us to which we get little and little and little in return. The more the lustful person indulges in their fantasy, the less happy they become and the more lust that person craves. The more the selfish person gets, the less they content they become and they still want more. It's always more brick, less straw. It is the very nature of sin to seek to control the sinner's whole life. John, in John 8, Jesus would say this, Most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. If you continue to do the things of the flesh, then guess what? You're a slave to the flesh. True freedom is being able to do what you ought to do, not what you want to do. And the Bible tells us, God's word tells us we ought to obey and worship God. And the only way we can do that is through Christ. We, like the Israelites in our story here in Exodus, need a savior. Thus, our story here is Christological. It means the story points to the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. See, whatever, to do whatever you want is not freedom. True freedom is doing what you ought to do. What man ought to do is worship, serve the living God, love God, and to love others. You see, until you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God's grace, God's way for mankind to be released from the bondage of his own passions, you will always be a slave to your passions. And that is not freedom. That is the ultimate slavery. The message of Exodus is that the Israelites being released from bondage in order to go and worship and serve their creator. 
This message is the same for us. We need to be released from the bondage of sin so that we can go and worship and serve the Creator, which you cannot do so long as you're a slave to sin. You cannot serve two masters. We have not been created to serve ourselves. That is why we can never be satisfied in living a life that is all about me. I was always created to serve someone else. That's why when, when, when um, celebrities and sports heroes and other people get put on a pedestal, they fall hard because they weren't created to receive that kind of glory. I don't want to be on a pedestal. I don't want anybody to worship me. I have the wisdom of knowing what God's word says and being able to see things through God's eyes of going, oh yeah, as that person is being lifted up, oh, how great that fall is going to be. Because we're to serve and worship God. It's interesting because your change does not happen overnight. You don't become super Christian the moment you receive Jesus. It is a process. We see it here with Moses. His first stepping out and, thus says the Lord, you better do this. Yahweh's with me. And, and God said, that's not what I said. You know. And so he kind of blows it a little bit, but you see him grow in his faith. You see him grow in his courage of doing what God is calling him to do. Probably not the best way. Probably should have listened to the Lord. Probably should have had a little bit more honey on top of what I was saying. You know. So it could be received better. Should have remembered my please and thank yous. And, and, and he's going to grow by that. And we're going to see him grow. And, and you don't become super Christian overnight either. And that's why those of us who have walked a little bit longer in the Lord, why we need to have a lot more patience with people that haven't. You know, grace has to be given uh, in, 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 in a magnanimous fashion in the body of Christ. Mercy has to be given in a magnanimous fashion in the body of Christ. Love has to be given in a magnanimous fashion because so much love has been given to us. So much grace, so much mercy has been given to us. Why? So we could dispense it to other people. Yeah, but she was wrong. Okay, so what? So she needs to be confronted. Well, does she? Or can we just kind of love her through it and let God just kind of reveal it to her over time? There are some times that things, yeah, we need to kind of pull someone aside and say, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. But we love you. It's no big deal. And, you know, we're not kicking you out of the fellowship or whatever. You know, you shot someone. Yeah, we'll probably have to do it at that point, you know. <laughs> if criminal things are happening, yeah, we probably have to do that. If you know, there's, there's some examples in 1 Corinthians 5. Yep, you're going to have to leave the fellowship if you're falling prey to that. You know, and those kind of things. Yeah, we'll have to do that. But for all the other things, we are the bride of Christ. And so this is like a marriage. It's one of the reasons why when you leave for some reason, it could be that, that your, your job is moving your way or you have to leave for other reasons. You know, you're moving out of town you know, whatever, why it's so heartbreaking and why it's so difficult when you leave and it's difficult for us because we're family. And it's like getting a divorce. All of a sudden, ah, you're, you're not here. You know, you, you had to leave and 
Ah, oh, it's, it's, it's a real drag. But then there's other times God is calling you. There's no doubt about it. And it is sad because, you know, again, you're family, but family grows up and leaves. It's when disciple send, you know, and, and quite often I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, but, but not you. We, we don't want to send you. Believe me, I have a list that I want God to send. All right. But, but not you. You're one of the I want you here. I mean, but it's not that. You know, it, it is difficult, you know, but we're a family. And, and, and people ask me all the time, he said, in marriage, what, what are the number one things that you tell people when they get married? I, I say, you need to show a lot of mercy and grace. That's what's needed in all marriages more than anything else, mercy and grace, and being able to forgive. Guess what? Your spouse is going to trespass against you. Hello. Do you not know that? Yeah, and I busted him for it. Well, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to give him grace. You're supposed to give him mercy. You're supposed to love them just like Christ loves you. And so this is what we're being called to do here. And, and so not everybody is going to grow up really quick. I know some people that have been in the Lord now for two, three years, and they're spiritual giants compared to some people that have supposedly been walking with the Lord for 20, 30 years. I go, wow, some of this takes longer than others. Guess what? I'm still going to love everyone. I'm not going to love the ones that I think are growing in Christ more than others. I'm going to love everyone. And I'm going to give grace and mercy. You know why? Because I want grace and mercy. And whatever you met out will be meted to you, Jesus said in Luke. And I want mercy. Hmm, I'm going to give mercy. Because I want mercy. I want grace. I'm going to give those things. That's what I'm going to do. And Philippians 1 6 says, Be confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. He promises it. It's interesting that when the devil recognizes the first sign or advance towards the Lord, he does everything he can to try and re- retain his victim. In Luke 9 37, now it happened on the next day when they had come down. The mountain that a great multitude met him, and suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and suddenly cries out and convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and he departs uh, departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored the disciples to cast out, but they could not. Jesus answered, said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming... The demon threw him down, convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. That father is bringing his son to Christ. And while on the way, the demons try and and, uh, keep him from being able to get there, trying to kill him. So long as a person has no desire for Christ, I'm just here to tell you, the demons don't care about you. They don't care about you. The devil will leave you alone. But once your soul is awakened to your need for Christ, Satan will put forth every effort to stop you. And we see it here with the Israelites. They've been told of their need for a deliverer who is Moses, a redeemer. And so now Satan's going to try and use Pharaoh to do everything he can to stop it and make their lives miserable for even contemplating of wanting to go with Moses. 
verse 19 of Exodus 5. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after he had said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. This is going to be fun. They said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent, repulsive, a stink is what that means. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand and to kill us. Interesting how they went to appeal to Pharaoh rather than praying to God. Just make our bondage a little easier and we will continue to serve you. Wow. And so again, there's no straw given to the servants. Indeed, your servants are beaten. Whose servants are they? They identify themselves as belonging to Pharaoh. Earlier in the, at the end of chapter 4, they believed God had visited him them, and they're about to be led out to their bondage. They bowed down. They worshiped God. But at the first sign of trouble, they ran to Pharaoh instead of God. Instead of going to God to seek their freedom, they went to renegotiate the terms of their captivity. Where's the wisdom in that? And yet that's the world. And that's what we do. It's interesting here that um, the only way to resist this temptation to run to the world is that in James 4, 7, it says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. In verse 20, it says, Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to them. They said to him, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And again, um, I, I look at this, and, and uh, man, you, you could have called on the Lord. could have called on the Lord. And yet they do. They call on the Lord right here. But what do they call him to do? To judge Moses. I call on Yahweh right now to look on you and judge. Why? Because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh. Why'd you even go to Pharaoh to begin with? Again, you went there and you feigned fealty to him. Calling yourself his servants, you should have gone to Moses. You should have gone to the leadership. But you have made up abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh. Yeah, that means stink or stench. It's interesting. Again, here are these play on words. Not only does God use the play on words that Pharaoh will use, or Moses, thus saith the Lord, and now Pharaoh is going to use that, thus saith Pharaoh. He also uses the words that the Israelites use. You have made us a stench towards Pharaoh. Interesting, because it's the same description that God gives of this terrible stench created by the dead decaying fish after the Nile turned to blood in Exodus 7.18. It's also described the dead decaying frogs in the second plague of Exodus 8, 14. It's also used of that stench uh, in Exodus 16, I believe is when the manna came down and people who tried to hoard it, it became a stench inside there when God said, don't hoard it, it'll be there every day. He uses the same word for them as well. It's so natural to want to blame others instead of going to your own spiritual leaders for prayer, direction, counsel. We get angry at people when we could go directly to the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. 